Welcome to Gritty Girls, the podcast. I'm Jillian Christie, and my passion and calling is really all about helping as many women realize that they have a scalable superpower, grit. If you're into hearing from badass, world-class women who just happen to be top chefs, athletes, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, artists, and activists on how they achieve their loftiest goals despite their greatest life challenges, then you don't want to miss the Gritty Girls podcast. Your journey to get inspired by phenomenal women around the globe and to learn how to cultivate more grit in your life starts now. I'm honored and excited to share the following part one of this two-part conversation with best-selling author, peace builder, cultural educator, entrepreneur, and international speaker, Aziz Abu Sara. A Palestinian raised in Jerusalem, his journey from a radical seeking revenge to peacemaker seeking reconciliation led to an innovative method of peacemaking. Harnessing the transformative power of travel, he co-founded Mejdi Tours in 2009. That's M-E-J-D-I tours.com. And I'm super excited to get into what Mejdi Tours is all about and how it turned the tourism industry on its head with its socially conscious travel and trademark approach of the dual narrative. Aziz's educational and conflict resolution work throughout the world has earned him the titles of National Geographic Explorer and TED Fellow. His TED Talk about travel and tolerance has over 1.5 million views. Aziz and I dive deep into exactly how he evolved from a boy wanting revenge on the ones who killed his brother to a man seeking to understand and build peace around the world. He'll share actual steps to how you can build peace throughout the world too. And it's simpler than you think. Stay tuned. So I I grew up in Jerusalem and uh, I grew up in a time of conflict and a time of a lot of shootings and tear gas and so on. And I remember when I was a little kid going to school, I was, I think, eight years old and coming back home and telling my mom that uh, I decided to quit school. This is it. And my mom, as any mother would say, yeah, right. You can't quit school. And I told her, I don't think school is worth dying for. Mm -hmm. And therefore I'm not going to school. There was tear gas on my way back home. And I felt like I was going to suffocate And so my mom came up with a solution and her solution was to give me an onion every day. And the reason she gave me an onion is because if you cut an onion, you put it close to your nose, it helps you not suffocate if there's tear gas. So if anybody's listening to this and wants to go to protest anywhere and you expect tear gas, that's what you want to do. Always take an onion with you. Looks weird, but it helps. So for, for many years, when I went to school, every morning I took an onion with me and I like to tell this story often because I think it's hard for people to imagine what does it mean growing in conflict zone? What does it mean growing in a place where, you know, there's shooting, there's tear gas, there's clashes all the time. And that's what it means. I grew up thinking every kid everywhere in the world grew up taking an onion to school because that's what was normal for me. And um, I am the youngest of seven kids. Uh, this is me when I was a kid and uh, 
my next brother older than me is Taysir here in the photo and he's uh, eight years old, nine years old, older than me. So I, I was what you call the oops child um, or that's what I thought uh, growing up. Recently, my mom said not fully true. <laughs> that's great news, Aziz. <laughs> I love to hear it. <laughs> yeah. And my, my dad was not so happy to know he was deceived for <laughs> this whole time. <laughs> so she decided that she just never told him. And for many years, it was like, oops, he just showed up. Um, but it meant also being nine years younger than my old, my next brother is that he was literally in charge of my life. You know, it's not my parents who took me my first day in school. It was my brother. It's not my parents who helped me do my homework. It was my brother. Uh, he, he was pretty much my boss, my dad, my everything, and the person I fought with all the time as well because we still were close enough in age to, to argue every now and then over TV, who's what we're going to watch. Um, but my this relationship with my brother was very... Uh, very close and uh, that's why to me conflict really hit home when when it affected him and that was when I was uh, nine years old he was uh, 18 he was arrested on suspicion of throwing rocks at soldiers he was arrested from home uh, and was taken to interrogation he was beaten up through this interrogation which resulted in internal injuries he was sentenced for one year in prison and uh, by the time he was released, uh, his injuries has pretty much uh, was putting him in his uh, last few days, a few weeks of his life. He had uh, a surgery, which didn't help. And a few days after the surgery, he ended up dying in the hospital uh, as a result of those injuries he sustained in prison. I was 10 years old when that happened. He was 19 and I was very angry. I was very bitter and I felt that revenge is the only way. And so I, I, I understand when people are angry. I understand when people want revenge because I've lived with that for eight years from the time I was 10 until the time I was 18 years old. This was the most important thing for me. Uh, the thing to remember, though, is that we, we think... We never think we're really going after revenge. Rarely we would be willing to admit it. We often think we are going after justice. And the line between justice and revenge is such a thin line. And it's not even in the actions, it's in the motivations of why you do what you do. What's really motivating you for, for, for that action? So for, for eight years, I was angry. I was doing all these activities, uh, mobilizing, throwing rocks, uh, writing. Um, I was editing a youth magazine, very angry um, messages that I was putting out until I went to study Hebrew. And uh, that's when I was 18. And I didn't want to study Hebrew before. It was something I avoided all my life. I ended up having to, because living in Jerusalem, not speaking Hebrew, totally, it's just, you can't really do things in life without Hebrew. And I went to study Hebrew in an ulpan, which is where Jewish immigrants to Israel study Hebrew. And it's crazy to say, but I lived in Jerusalem, walking distance from, you know, where Jews live. 
we, we were so close to each other. And yet I've never sat down in a coffee shop and had a conversation. I've never had a friend who was from the other side. And it wasn't until this moment in this classroom that I really got to see somebody from the other side who's not carrying a gun, who's not telling me whether I can go to school or not. And that was such a powerful and different experience. Even though I went to my class literally thinking everyone is in this class, probably looking at me and thinking, why is this Arab here in this classroom? What does he want? And I was lucky because my Hebrew teacher, an Israeli Jewish woman, just came in my first day, welcomed me in Arabic, um, told me hello. And that shocked me is that she recognized me. She recognized my language. She recognized me as, as a human being. Um, and the, through this class, I ended up meeting more and more people like her, other students, other teachers, building friendships, building relationships, and realizing that we always have the power of choice. Regardless of how others act against us, we choose whether we want to go in that direction or if we choose otherwise, choosing anger, choosing hatred is the easier path. And in some ways it feels normal, but it's, it kills you from inside and realizing that I can choose a different path. seems like so normal, so easy, but it was such a redeeming thing uh, because I feel like growing up for eight years, the person who killed my brother was basically controlling my life. Mm. I was acting based on his actions and realizing that I don't have to choose that path is, was such a redeeming thing. And so ever since this has been what I focus on most is how do you bring down walls and barriers that divide people that makes people angry, bitter, seek revenge how do you bring down those walls between us everywhere and to realize that we don't have to be on opposite sides because we have different skin color, different nationality, different religion. To me, I don't see, I have very close, like my business partner now is, is a Jewish American and I don't see him on the other side because he's Jewish and I'm Palestinian. To me, we are on the same side because we both believe in in shared society. We both believe in equality. We both believe in justice. Um, and that's, I think, the division I look at is it should be those of us who believe in that and those of us who don't yet, because I wasn't there before. And, and you, what you think that's something where, you know, the yet piece is because um, you know, they, they just haven't gotten there yet, even though in their, in their mind, they, they might want that, um, yeah, maybe describe what that, what you mean by that. Yeah, I think we all go through journeys and we get to where we are because of things we experienced, because of ignorance, because of things we didn't know. In my case, it was I never, even though I lived in Jerusalem, I didn't know any Israelis. I didn't have any friends who were Israelis. We had no way of really getting in touch with each other. So it's somewhere, it's actually normal that we grew up angry and full of fear and hatred because we didn't know who the other is. And when you don't know, you demonize the other. So I can, you can look at community like that and say, they're awful, they are bad, they are evil because look, this is what they think. I have a hard time seeing it this way because that's how 
that's how I grew up. So I understand why people become this angry. I understand that there is often, you know, I don't want to say good reason, but there's often a socialization. There's a habits that we become part of that make us who we are. Totally. And I feel like that it's like pain is, is such a, a major ingredient to this anger. There's just so much pain. How can I get rid of that? How can I cover that up? Oh, there's this more powerful energy that I can put out, which is anger and hate and revenge. And um, mm-hmm. I thought you, you put that so eloquently just a, a few minutes ago when you said, you know, revenge, it was like this other person was controlling you or or everything that you did was based off of this thing because you wanted Mm -hmm. this revenge. And so I feel like, you know, revenge is almost like a relinquishment, a a relinquishing of your power. And when you get to choose, I want peace, I want justice, and I want to intentionally move in that direction and let go of these things and let go of who's kind of controlling me and my actions and I get to choose my actions from from here forward that's when you gain your power back right that's when you know and and it's it's wild because I think so many people think you know the the villain or the the angry or the revenge is the more powerful piece when really it's the letting go of it it's the letting go of Mm -hmm. that is so powerful and just so hard to do it's the harder thing and that's what you said it is you know if i walk to a classroom in israel or in palestine and i preach hatred it's easier and more people will probably follow me and the same in the u.s and the same in many places if i figure out who is it that your enemy is and i stand stand up and say we need to fight we need to beat them up that makes you often a hero when you start talking about we need to overcome that many people look at us and say you're naive you are what's wrong with you? And I've done it in classrooms in in Israel and Palestine here in in the U.S. as well. And it's amazing. People look at me and say, how could you do this? And it is much harder. People look at you like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, no, completely. And and this may be a a wild assumption, but I had a conversation with someone about, um, you know, emissions and things in, in this, you know, we're talking about recycling and whatever else we're talking about, just being good to the planet and it was like, oh, yeah, but I mean, I'm not going to change anything by doing this thing. And it's like, OK, but if you thought the other way that just your small difference and everyone's added small difference, that could be the change. Right. And I, I, I see the similarities here with, you know, people think you're crazy. What are you doing? It's so hard. Not everyone's going to going to join your bandwagon, Aziz. But. But that's why it's so important because uh, it is the harder thing. Indifference is the biggest obstacle I've met doing this work. Because I'll walk into a classroom, Israeli or Palestinian classroom, and at the end of a few hours arguing back and forth and they're asking a million questions and they're trying to process everything they've gone through. And then they say, okay, fine, I agree with you, but... What can I do? I'm just, I'm just an 18-year-old. What can I do? I'm just 17-year-old. And that's, I think it's the biggest enemy we have to making any sort of change in the world. Because if everyone thinks I'm just one person, nothing can ever change. Yeah. And so I remember a story by, uh, by an Israeli author named Amos Oz, who's one of the best authors uh, Israel had. And, and he says, if you're walking by a building on fire, you have three options of what you can do. The first option is you run away. 
And the building on fire here symbolizes any problem, any conflict, any issue. So you run away. You say, this is not my house. Why do I care? It's kind of tricky because fire spreads and it could get to your house. It will affect you. It will change things that will reach you. Okay, that's one choice. The second choice is to, to create a committee to investigate who should you blame for the fire. And by the time you figure out who to blame for the fire, everybody in that building would be dead, which is also common. We often think, you know, if I tweet about something, then I've done my part. If I say who I think is a bad and evil person, who we should cancel, who we should, that's enough. That's all I need to do. And I hate to say it, but tweeting isn't activism. It's like, yeah, it's it could be part of it, but it's not it. Figuring out who you should blame and who you should be angry at isn't really activism. And the third option, he goes, is to get a bucket, fill it with water, and you throw it on the fire. And then he goes, but what if you don't have a bucket? Then you get a cup, you fill it with water, and you throw it in the fire. And then what if you don't have a cup? You get a spoon, you fill it with water, and you throw it in the fire. And that's when everybody goes, hey, one person with a spoon can't, can't put out the fire. And that's accurate. One person with a spoon can't. But if each one of us figures out what we can do, you have a bucket, I have a spoon, you have a cup, and we each take whatever we have to put out the fire, then we can put it out. The problem is each one of us often thinks, oh, I only have one bucket. That's it. It's not going to make a difference. Oh, you only have one spoon. It won't make a difference. But it's about how we can work together. And we miss what we so focused on the bigger picture that we miss a lot of the change we can do individually. Totally. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's like we can, we can't, I mean, when you were, when you were saying what those 18 year olds were saying that rhetorical question, and then again, to this analogy that you were just using, it's, you just turn the rhetoric on its head and you meet it with real solutions and answers because in their mind, it's, it's rhetorical, but probably deep down, it's like, well, really, what can I do? Can, right. can I make a difference? And, and what's so important is reminding people that they can and that collectively that, you know, if everyone kind of had that paradigm shift in how they're thinking, then yes, that, that change could come and it could come sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, I, I agree to with the, the, the tweet situation. And don't be sorry to let the people know that that's not activism because it's not. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was I was tinkering with this like, you know, this affirmative, affirmative uh, activism, if you will. You know, like the pro like I, this is what I believe in. This is I, I'm, a, I'm a fighting for justice. I'm fighting for peace um, and not against A, B, C or D. It's. It's the pro version that I think too is so important to uh, to meet those those rhetorical questions with. Also, yeah. you know, I actually went through that once, and and that's an amazing thing. You can be doing this for so many years and then fall in it yourself. So I, I was working in Syria and the Syrian conflict, and um, I was with a Syrian colleague of mine. This is when when everything just started and people were being driven out of their homes by the millions. And unfortunately, they're still out of their homes. And we crossed the border into Syria, me and my colleague who is Syrian. And I was so depressed because it's just 
you see tens of thousands of people don't have homes. Everybody I talk to have lost a family member. The, you know, half a million people more were killed. And so it was just such a depressing thing. And then we start asking kids if they go to school and, you know, nobody does because what schools? I mean, there are no supplies, there are no teachers, there's nothing. And I looked at my colleague, I'm like, there's nothing we can do. This is like hell on earth. I, I was so depressed. And she said, no, I think we can do something. Let's, and this was like March or April, this term. She's like, let's come back in three, four months, invite a few of our friends and let's set up a camp for these kids. We can't make a big change right now, but we can set up a camp. So we came back, we convinced nine people to come back with us. We ended up having 450 kids. Wow. So that's when I decided wow. I'm not going to have any kids of mine. <laughs> Those kids were that amazing. Was the moment. <laughs> yeah. It was 12 <laughs> hours a day with kids from early morning until the evening. I'm like, and I was in charge of sports activities. I've worked out more that day, those days, than I have ever done. Uh, but it was incredible to see the change that you're able to generate. And we ended up coming back again and again. And this camps ended up developing into schools. And so I ended up starting a school in Jordan, a school in uh, Syria, a school in Lebanon. And my colleague, the, the Syrian colleague, Nusha Kabawat, still runs those schools, fully funded by volunteers, no big organization underwriting it. All us, the people who went in and volunteered, decided, oh, I can chip in 100 bucks every month. I can give 50 every month. And it ended up making a difference. And now I'm in touch with some of these kids who were 12 and 13, and now they're going to college. And yeah, I didn't change the whole Syrian conflict. I didn't affect the big picture. But watching these girls go to college now because we were able to pitch in whatever amount, to me is amazing because we were able to go and spend some time with them. And I know them personally and I'm able to call them. Actually, I invite some of them to talk on some of my tours in, in Jordan, for example. And it's, it's just incredible. Nothing is more fulfilling then seeing the results, even if it's something small you've done, seeing that result is just so uplifting. And I think of those moments when I thought, ah, I there's nothing I can do. Look, there are millions of kids that are displaced. What can I do to a million kids? Nothing. But I can help one kid. I can you know, help 10. First of all, I had goosebumps the whole time. So I'm like, <laughs> this is wild. I didn't, real I didn't realize the whole extent of that, of that story. And it's amazing. Um, uh, and you, you know, and I think this is part of the shift that needs to happen, right? Is we think, well, I can do a small thing and, and we can, we can do that, that smaller thing, but the impact is huge. It's huge. You've changed people's whole worlds. Mm -hmm. Their whole lives have forever changed. The trajectory of their lives have forever changed. And that is no small feat. Um, so I think, I think that's part of the work is like, you know, instilling in humanity that our small efforts grow to these exponential, amazing impacts for the better. And, and, you know, collectively, what could that look like? Right. So that is, that's why, what were the, oh, that's so amazing, Aziz. I, <laughs> I love it so, so much. You want to see some pictures? I do. I do. And I want to know, did you guys, did y'all name it anything? Yes, it's called Project Amalu Salam. People can still be involved in it, can reach out to, to I'm happy to make a connection always, can reach yeah. out to uh, to the organization. And like I said, it's still 
wait a second. I'm totally in the wrong uh, presentation. Uh, oops. What happened? One sec. How do you reach? See, I told you this is a... Uh, this presentation is so big <laughs> and I'm using photos from it. So these are some of the kids who I've met and this is a kid I met in one of the refugee camps. That's a refugee camp in Jordan. Uh, and he inspired me actually to do this next project, which is bringing kids to take photographs, teaching them to become photographers uh, and to exhibit their own photos. And the reason is I felt I took this photo and I was using it a lot to explain what does it mean to be a refugee. And after a while, I realized I was telling really my story, not his, you know, mm. how he picked up this piece of trash and he was so excited because he had nothing to play with. And I felt, you know what, that's what I want to tell about him. Mm. But if he had the opportunity to tell the story, would it be the same or not? And to be frank, I thought it would be similar. I was very wrong. So we went back. I partnered with National Geographic and brought, you know, Amy Thompson and Matt Moyer, some of the most famous photographers in the world who came and, you know, we started teaching these kids how to do photography and then asked them to go and tell us the story through the photos. What is it that you want the world to know about you? And it was so different than what they expected. So these are some of the photos they took, them hugging with each other. Oh, holding hands so this photo good. made me upset because i've i like to think i'm a good photographer with a really nice camera and in two days they were taking better photos than me <laughs> um, photos of themselves uh, so artistic so innovative photos that i know for me represent what freedom means uh, photos of the most important sports in the world which is football <laughs> or as americans mistakenly <laughs> call it soccer and and just the, the stories they wanted to tell. By the way, this was exhibited two years ago at the Kennedy Center. Oh, wow. Um, so, again, a small thing. And these kids were able to tell their stories. And this girl especially is, is I have favoritism, so she's my favorite. <laughs> and her name is Anwar. And she wrote a letter with the photos. This photo was taken by Amy Thompson. Um, but she wrote a letter that, to me, is one of the most powerful words I've ever read on conflict. And she writes, to whom it may concern, you know, in every UN card that they got, asylum card, this is how it starts. To whom it may concern, this person oh, wow. is Good a refugee. Stuff. Right. So, to whom it may concern, these words I read every day and my UNHCR asylum seeker certificate. I am a Syrian child. The only thing I hope in this world is to wake up from this terrible nightmare and to return to my friends, to return to my life. To my home before this war and if the time goes back I just want to play with the people who lost their lives and I will ask them to leave Syria I never thought that I would live in a tent but that's all right I never thought I will not listen to my English teacher who I love so much in Syria but that's all right I never thought I will not breathe the smells of Syrian fields in summer nights but that's all right but to whom it may concern please stop war and let me go back to my past life. Wow. wow. She wrote this when she was either 13 or 14. Um, and 
I love her story because I think too often we either see ourselves as victims or as survivors. And it doesn't matter. You could be the richest, most powerful, most amount of money, most everything, and you still can see yourself as victim. And I meet many of those here in the States. And, you know, if you see yourself as the victim, you think the whole world is against you. You kind of build a wall around yourself. You don't let anybody in. You're not vulnerable. You don't want to be close to people. And you think everyone is against you. The whole world is against you. And then here's a girl who lost everything. She became homeless. She lives in a tent. She, you know, she went through so much. And then I read her words and I don't see a victim. Mm-hmm. I see a survivor. And she is. She went, she ended up graduating high school, going to college. She is in college studying. And she is working hard to move to to build a life despite everything she went through. Wow. And so I, I, that's keep going. I'm sorry. Don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's all. That's so amazing. And, and it, it reminds me too of the same, you know, the same concept of revenge, taking your power. I think victim, you know, playing victim or not playing. Cause yes, it, I understand that, um, it's a very real thing, but survivor is so much more powerful. It's owning your own power. I survived this and this is what I want. I, I want my life. I want to go back there. I'm mm-hmm. going to, I'm going to play in those fields. I want to do these. Would you, would you, Aziz, would you say, what, what was her name? Anwar. Anwar. Would you Which say means Anwar? light, by the way. Oh, that's pretty. <laughs> I love her already. Um, Anwar, would you say Anwar, Aziz, is a gritty girl? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I would love to, I would love, where does she go to college? She's in Jordan. In Jordan, yeah. Um, does You'll she... need to go to Jordan, and then we can go and have <laughs> yeah. tea in her house. Crazy. Um, wow, that's incredible. And the photo was amazing as well. The words, so powerful. I mean, to be 13 and to, and to be able to so succinctly, you know, put so much, um, so much meaning and so much heavy meaning into this very short, like, two paragraphs is incredible. Right incredible and then the callback of to whom it may concern i had chills i was crying is gorgeous gorgeous um did you take that photo oh no, no it was amy thompson i mean wow. amy is like being on the cover of national geographic magazine she's one an amazing she's an amazing photographer and amazing that she came and spent a week with with us in uh in Jordan with these kids and teaching them how, not just how to do photography, but also how to edit. Um, right now, I actually, whenever I take groups to Jordan tourists, I try to have Anwar go and meet with them or they go to her home, get to meet her family, have a tea with them or have dinner with them. And it's, and she gets to talk to them about her journey. Wow. I would, I would love to do that someday for sure. Um, that's incredible. Um, when you were, you know, throughout the camp is amazing. Like, uh, the camp turned into schools, uh, across, you know, all, um, how many countries you said they were in like five, uh, the refugee camps, no, oh, the, the schools. the schools were in four countries. Wow. We had to pull out of Syria after serious bombing. Uh, but there is at least, I think it's now in three. Wow. Um, and, and what, if I, if I could ask, like, what kind of curriculum beyond, you know, of course, the, the 
physical fitness that you, that you taught? Like what? what? Oh, those were the camps. The camps oh, were, were the camps. more fun. Okay, that's um, good. The actual school is real, real edu- Well, sports is also real education. <laughs> Not in any school I ever went to. For some reason, we only had once a week an hour of. Uh, oh no! Yeah. No art, no sports, oh, none of that kind of stuff, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but in in this program, what we did for many years when I was more involved, so I don't know exactly how it's moving now, but when I was more involved, what we did is many of these kids were coming out of Syria, not be not going to school for a year or two mm. because of the war, because of the conflict. They stay first in uh, internally displaced camps. And then they end up coming in. And then when they go to school, two, three years not going into school, it's just they end up failing. And so what we did was start bringing these kids and prepare them to go back into school. So we would work with the local uh, public schools on what needs to be done uh, for these kids to be accepted back into school and for them to succeed. And I remember first year we started in Jordan, that was the first school we we did. We had 44 students who were not enrolled in any school. And by the end of the year, 41 of them enrolled in local schools. Wow. Which to me was was incredible to be able to do that. Incredible, incredible. Um, Which, you know, without that foresight of you and your friend going, you know, what could we do? And then the answer coming, right? Like being met with, here's the solution. Um, Then none of that would have ever, you know, come to fruition. And wow, how incredible these, these children, now young adults lives are forever changed. And that's incredible. And they involved too. She has been, Anwar has been volunteering in the school ever since. That's awesome. While she was studying, she was also volunteering and she still goes and volunteers there. So it, it ends up impacting those, those kids for a lifetime. That's fantastic. You know, and it, it kind of reminds me of part of the reason why this became a conversation and why we thought, you know, we really need to have this convo. And you, of course, came straight to my mind <laughs> when we were talking about converse, uh, communication, understanding, and de-escalation of conflict and all these things. Um, and we were having this conversation, Lauren and I, about why, you know, why aren't we taught um, empathy and and different types of things in in our younger years in school that would kind of almost prepare us for a human life um, and and being human, right? Because I think that's, uh, to your point, going back also of of when you're walking to school every day with an onion, when you're a child, your world is the whole world, right? That's that's the normal. And you think everyone else, it has that normal. And I, I just think that's such a powerful uh, concept to teach children at a young age. It's like, you know, everyone, you know, and I know in some in some instances it maybe it is not, <laughs> but I don't think there's an emphasis on teaching empathy and teaching, um, you know, how how the world works and having proper communication skills, proper communication, <laughs> listening, listening um, how to have interpersonal relations with humans because I mean it starts it starts young right that, like everything in this world that um, that could that is going awry or can go awry stems from humans 
And, and all of that stems from, you know, what made us who we are and, and were we, were we treated with compassion? Um, do we know how to give it? Um, so yeah, I'm just, it just kind of started making me think about these things and then going back, uh, going back to your, uh, very distinct, uh, let me, experience. Yes. Let me show you a couple of things I think would be interesting on, on this. I, I think we, we kind of live today in a time where kind of the processing of information we getting and those cues and shortcuts we are we are being socialized to be divided we being trained to be divided we everything we consume around us unfortunately from home to school to media to everything around us tells you you build your bubble around you and that's what's okay and that's what's not these are the people you can hang out with these are the people you shouldn't and we, we then, you know, become very self-righteous in our own reality. And when you do that, you create the us versus them thinking, us versus them men- mentality. And there have been a few researches that shows how powerful that is. Uh, for example, one where they divided people into two teams, people who know each other in the same classroom, and you give some red uh, T-shirts and other blue T-shirts, and then you say you are in separate teams. And within a millisecond, people with the red T-shirts saw the people with the blue T-shirt as their enemy. Mm, yeah. To the point that if something bad happens to them, they would enjoy it. Oh. Even though they're friends. And then when they had somebody flip teams, meaning I'll take somebody from the red team and make them join the blue team. Within a minute, they already were like, oh yeah, I'm in the blue team. I hope something bad happens to the, to the other, to the red <laughs> team. And that's that doesn't happen in one day that's because we we have been socialized and we have to be aware of that to see the other as an enemy um that being another research that's uh, that's kind of crazy is um bringing people and seeing how they react to pain of others so you would be connected to all these uh things to test how you're reacting and if the person hand that's being uh you know, the pin coming into it. If that person is the same color, people are more likely to feel the pain than if it's a different color. In some cases, depending on what the other color is, sometimes they had some good feeling when the pain was inflicted on the other. Oh, wow. Okay. And just for context, for, for everyone listening, there is a visual here of two different humans with different uh, coloring in their skin. And there's a research that's done when they're poked or pricked with a needle and, and delivered pain. And, and now Aziz, you're talking about the reactions of the people um, opposite them. Wow. So, so all these are examples of, I think how we being socialized to, we need to be aware of what information we are consuming. We need to be aware of who we surrounding ourselves with, how much we willing to tolerate and hear something that is different and challenges what I believe in. Because if we don't, then that's where we end up. We end up in this division. And I find that the best way to do that is through stories. You can't write away 
connect to people on things you disagree with unless you hear where they're coming from. And so when we have when we hear facts, only two parts of our brain actually light up. When we hear stories, our whole brain lights up because every aspect of that story gets stored in a different place. And we emotionally connect much more than when we listen to to facts. And that's why often we get misled because that's people who know this. That's what they use to kind of socialize us to be against each other. But what I'm proposing is I think we need to listen to people's stories who we disagree with. Mm. And that will help us sympathize much more and start to understand where they come from. So we, we had this conversation before, Jillian, about how do you talk to someone you disagree with? Where do you even start? And too often people want to jump right away into like, okay, you are democ- d- uh, Democrat and Republican or vice versa. Let's talk about where we disagree. Tell me your facts. I'll tell you my facts. And that will never create a good relationship. It just doesn't work. I instead want to know the person. What's what's your story? Where you come from? Why did you end up basically believing what you believe today? I want to hear more than just what's the bunch of facts you think you believe in. And in many cases, it's stuff you've been told to believe in. That's less interesting to me to even argue about. I don't want to argue about more taxes or less taxes right away. That's not interesting. I want to know who you are. Mm. And so to build any kind of rapport with someone, especially those we have disagreements with, hearing their stories is the most powerful way to do that. Yeah, no, definitely. I, you know, and, and to your point, it's, uh, I think, you know, that's, that's exactly what needs to happen. I think in order to build that compassion muscle, um, and to understand where someone else is coming from. Unfortunately, I see a lot of humans, and this is just human nature, I guess, even though maybe that's also the lie, maybe it can be something else, but you see people coming together that are, oh, well, we're so much alike. And mm-hmm. we, sh- we just, we're kind of in this vacuum of likeness, and we share these stories. And it's like this party of confirmation bias over and over and over. It's like, let's just confirm that what we think is reality. Um, and that's, and that's so important is to put yourself in places, maybe uncomfortable at first, um, to just listen, listen, just, just to listen to someone else's experience and, and why they think what they do. And guess what? You still may not agree with them. Yeah. And that's fine. But maybe you understand them now. Right. Yeah, I, I I think it's, to me, it's the most fun thing to do, to put yourself in a place where you are uncomfortable because life is boring. Is If everybody I talk to fully agrees with me, I know, I think it's a bit boring. Yeah, <laughs> uh, totally. So, I mean, no, I mean, no. As the <laughs> no, you uh, need people obviously who agree with you and you need friends who do, but there's something educational, something stimulating when you talk to people who disagree with you. It forces you to think. It forces you to understand. I have a friend who's a rabbi and he tells me when he when he studied in his rabbinical program, they would have them take each, uh, they will pair them into couples and each person would take an opinion and the other will have to fight against that opinion, to argue against it. And then when they finish arguing, he said, then they'll flip us and say, argue the point you were for 
before and you can't use any argument the other person used. Yeah. Come up with something new. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and then you learn to understand both sides of every argument, not just, oh, well, this is the one I agree with. And, and your job is to win every argument in this case, but they, they would make them to do that. So you understand always what the argument for, what the argument against to every topic to understand it. And and no, in my in my life, I've been many times in those situations. I grew up in a very Muslim house. I went to an evangelical Bible college. Very on, I was the only Arab in that classroom. I went to the Hebrew class. I was the only Palestinian in that classroom. And those moments are the most I remember from education because I was being taught so many things I disagreed with, many things I found hard to accept, many things I needed to do research. And because of that, I did the research, I studied harder, and I was able to learn so much more because I was in a place I was uncomfortable. And I think the people around me learned a lot more because by me being there, it became uncomfortable probably for them in some of those moments. Uh, But the relationships you create, are they last for a long time because forever, because this is, it's abnormal in some ways. And I'm happy I... I keep myself surrounded by people who disagree with me. I, I love that. And um, that's a good thing for like relation, like romantic relationships to do that. If you have an argument, just try to argue the other person's side so you can understand their perspective. That's, yeah, that, that would be a great activity in, <laughs> in a friendship, in a romantic relationship. That would be like an awesome activity, actually. And, and I think I mentioned this to you, maybe not, but uh, um, that that gathering that I produced, but pre-COVID, of course, when it was, you know, large and live and in person, um, in Bretton Woods, kind of, we, you know, we celebrated the the 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods and, and reimagining the global economy and what that could look like moving forward. Um, and I was so bummed because in 2020, which of course we had to cancel, um, you know, one of one of the big workshops I wanted to workshop and and create and ha- and make happen was to divide the um, divide the attendees whom were part- our participants and there's about 300, so it's like 150. You know, and they're on a team for the for the three days, and and one of the teams is how to destroy the world essentially like how to bring it down and like and at the end they have to present this is how we're going to bring the world down and and but but what happens there is then we see all these things that we're doing we are doing a lot of these things yeah and we are i would have wanted to be in that team that sounds a fun team You, you know, uh, Stephen Hawkins, actually, before he died, told us that he thinks the world will be destroyed basically because of human aggression. Mm. So, Yeah, I mean, we are our, our worst enemies. Like, we, yeah. do it, um, we, we do it to ourselves and we, we do it to each other. And it's just so sad. It's, um, I mean, that's the whole basis for this whole conversation, you know. Um, can we all just get along, you know, essentially? <laughs> Uh, in, in the most simplest terms, of course. Um, but going back to like putting yourself in, in uncomfortable situations and loving to be around humans and, and, you know, and friends and family or whatnot that disagree with you, I think, you know, and that's, that's great. That's great that you enjoy that. 
I know not a lot of people do. So it's it, right. It's hard to kind of cultivate that yeah. community where it's a safe place to believe exactly right. what you believe yeah. and to share it, even though you know very well, or maybe you don't, that I believe completely, uh, you know, I have a completely different set of beliefs. And, um, you know, how do we get people to a place where they're both curious and open-minded and now, and that's just the beginning, right? Because then they have to, to be comfortable with the uncomfort of, of having those conversations. Right? Yeah, you are right. I would say the first thing to do is to change the way you consume media. Um, that, that helps you learn what people and the, whatever is your other side thing. So I don't know if I told you before, but one of my favorite websites to read and then use from is called allsides.com. Allsides. You introduced me to Allsides and right. I love it. I've turned so many people onto it, but go on. They, they owe me. They should pay me royalties. I do that to everyone I know. <laughs> but I love it. Allsides ambassador. Right. I love it because what it does, you have to know what other people are consuming to know why they think the way they think. And if you're reading totally different views, your view is going to be on the issue really different, especially if that's your only source of news. And I like reading all sides of com because it gives me the left, the middle, and the right, and the maybe far left and far right of every issue. And it makes me able to understand what somebody on the other side. So when I meet someone who thinks differently than me, I can understand why they got to that point. Oh, because you read this and I read that article and it gives you something to even talk about. And in many cases, I think people more open to listening to you when they realize you're not only listening to your own side, even if that's what they do. Even if that's what they do. Exactly. Exactly. If, if you come to the conversation with, oh, I, I definitely, I saw that. And so I can see why you believe this because right. definitely the verbiage is very skewed. <laughs> I mean, you maybe don't say that, <laughs> but um, no, totally. It's, and it's so interesting. And, and it goes back to that confirmation bias, right? It's like, if we only sit and watch one station that is, that is, you know, clearly, very biased then then you know and that's what we believe then of course like it just feeds that that confirm it confirms right. that that bias and that's that's the first thing i think the second thing important is when we start meeting people and you know in this country there'll be a lot of people who probably don't agree with us on certain things when you meet those people your attitude let me see, how do I say this? I, I was on a class once, uh, I was working for, for a university and I was on a class uh, running a study abroad a class with a few other people. And this student who was conservative in a classroom full of everybody was liberal. And I think people can feel your attitude because we ended up becoming friends and she's like, oh, you're the only one who didn't seem to judge some of the things I say that were conservative. Uh, and so I feel more willing to share and to be open. So the way we talk about others who disagree with us, well, you realize there are people around you who might be different, but never told you and their views because they don't want to go into that because they don't think you're willing to listen. So you that's another. Yeah. So number two is, is bringing a safe, like cultivating a safe space by, by keeping an open mind to people. Right. 
and not throwing comments left and right against those who you don't think they're in the room because sometimes they are in the room. And I remember one professor, I, I remember him being like so openly about his political views, yeah. so openly, so open about them in a way that made anybody who disagree never, never would say a thing because they knew he's not going to like it. Yeah. So, and in his mind, and I knew the guy, he wouldn't have judged them for it. But it made them unwilling to to open up because they thought, well, he's so hardcore in that direction. If I say I'm not, I'm going to get my grades down. I'm yeah. not going to do that. But but that we do that, I think, too often. It's like just do this dismissing comments about whoever the other is. Um, and the third is, I think, not to fight whatever we hear right away meaning not to have not to prepare an argument in a minute against whatever somebody is going to say radical listening is i think the best way to have a productive conversation even when people say racist stuff even when people say horrible stuff don't jump on it right away to prove you're right that's one choice you could if you want but then you're not gonna change them and i i take that from from um, a, a friend of mine, uh, I think I also mentioned him to you before, Daryl Davis, who's an African-American jazz musician who ended up working on converting KKK members out of that organization. And I, I remember sitting with him and asking him, like, how could you do that? Like, did these guys like sit and listen to you? It's like, no, normally in the first meeting or two, they'll just lecture me about how my brain is too small to understand and how I'm probably on welfare and how I'm this, wow. you know, he grew up, his parents were diplomats. He's well-educated. He's a very good musician. He's never been on welfare. And so he's like, I sit and listen sometimes an hour, sometimes two, and they just bombarding me with all nonsense. It's like, I'll listen to it because it's not offensive to me because it doesn't represent me. Yeah. It's an ignorance they have. It's not really against me. It's, in some ways, it's against them because, you know, they, they're saying stuff that's not reality. It's like, I don't fight it. I listen, listen, listen. And only after I say, I listen to your story, can I tell you mine? And in most cases, these people really don't fully believe a lot of these things. There's some personal story. There's something they've, been, they've gone through. And he introduced me to a couple former... Uh, former neo-Nazis. And when you hear the story, it has nothing to do with racism in the beginning. It's often family problems, alcoholism, bullying, things like that they've gone through that turned them to this direction. And so by listening to them and starting to engage with them, he eventually was able to help hundreds of people out of this uh, hate organization, hate the groups so listening is hard it's probably the hardest thing we can do but it's, i think one of the most powerful things it's not about what you're gonna say it's often about how much willing are you to listen how much willing are you to care and to make somebody feel that you care about them you're not just there to prove them wrong because no one enjoys that doesn't matter how wrong they are no one enjoys being lectured about how wrong they are yeah Totally. I, was, I was listening to your pod or one of your podcasts, uh, the crossing boundaries is part two with this, with the, this gentleman uh, I think that's on the there. gentleman that you're talking about. And it was, yeah, it's it, at the end of the day, it's like, it's fear. And the, the reasons why he got into the white supremacy group had nothing to right. do with believing. And it almost seemed like a, a group of belonging that he was trying to 
to be with. But I mean, I've I've myself have had to try and be a better uh, listener, especially with I've been uh, more interacting with uh, someone in my life now that uh, I've been having several conversations with, and they recently got out of prison. And there is a completely different mindset than mine, because obviously I've never been to prison, and it's trying to understand where they're coming from, because our perspectives on life and everyday life are so different, and we're both yeah. out, you know, she's outside of prison, and uh, it's just a completely different perspective, but yeah, radical listening, like listening to the end, instead of cutting them off, because you might hear their real perspective at the very end. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I think, too, with that, like, uh, the radical listening piece is so powerful because it helps the other person sometimes finally articulate what they're thinking or feeling. Maybe they didn't know how to do that before, and now they're doing it out loud. And Mm -hmm. uh, I know for me, I talk a lot, Aziz. I don't know (laughs) if you've noticed this over the past year that I've known you, but I talk a lot. And sometimes for me to come to the conclusion of what I'm a either trying to say or how I really feel about something, I need to talk. I need to say it out loud or write it down. And mm-hmm. so that listening piece is is making space for for that person also to grow. Yeah, to- we are similar in that. I like to talk a lot. Actually, I realized I tried uh, the last book I wrote. I tried to write it so many times and failed. And eventually I realized I cannot write it without saying it first. Nice. And so I had to first speak it and transliterate it and then make it into chapters because my the way my brain works is I have to say something before it makes sense to me. Totally. If I try to write it without saying it first, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely very similar in that, in that sense. Um, you know, and, and going back to your, your jazz musician friend, that's, first of all, like so many things I, I want to touch on is he is making such a huge difference, um, even just in the minds of humans and the ways they think. And, and that mm-hmm. makes such a, there's such a ripple effect from that alone. It's incredible. But, you know, sometimes it's also people who have been on this path of hatred and anger Sometimes it's a small act of kindness that completely shocks them out of their comfort zone. So there's another episode where we interviewed a guy uh, called TM. He's, uh, he used to be the KKK leader in Europe. Um, and when I asked him how he changed, he said, oh, the building I lived in had a Muslim in it. And I kept saying, this Muslim guy is going to kill all of us and is going to murder us and all of that. And at some point, this Muslim dude went and invited him for dinner. And it's like, I thought, no way, I shouldn't go. And then I thought, well, I need to figure out what he's cooking there, what he's doing in this house. Probably it's like, I don't know, making bombs there. (laughs) It's like, so I went and it's like, I expected him to make me hummus and falafel because he's Muslim and from Turkey. So that was shawarma, I don't know. It's like, I went and he had, I think it was fried chicken. And it's like, and that was already shocking to me. He had fried chicken for food. (laughs) It wasn't what I expected. And then they start talking. This guy was normal. And he's like, we start having conversation. And that was his first step in getting out. And the Muslim guy didn't know any of this. He didn't know, like, what was going, I think, on with with his mind. Probably for the best at first, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's the small acts of kindness 
that sometimes makes such a rebel effects, whether we know it or not. And sometimes it takes years for it to, to happen, for the results to come. But it's just, we, you never know when you do a small act of kindness where it leads. You never, you never know. And, you know, listening to that, that podcast with, with TM, your, your podcast, Crossing Borders, is that correct? Crossing Boundaries. Crossing Boundaries, even better. Oh, whew, that's like the meta, right? So um, I love it. But, but listening to that episode, um, when you say that small act of kindness, you know, I remember T- TM saying, I had, you know, he showed me such compassion. Yeah. And I had never gotten that as a child. I didn't know what, the, I never right. received that. And so to your point, that small act of kindness, like changed his whole inside world because he got to experience yeah. what that was like. I think if I remember right, he said he got into anti-Semitism because telling anti-Semitic jokes made people like him and made people accept him. And it started as just, oh, it's a way I can get good attention and yeah. people like me. And then eventually became full-blown on neo-Nazism. But, and, and that, I think, knowing where people come from is so helpful because you can look at him and say, evil guy. And then you're like he got into it not because he was born evil. He was in a situation that got him into it. And it was exactly the same thing. It was meeting this hate with love and compassion that got him out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he, what got him into it, like you were saying, is for that re- very real human desire for connection and for acceptance. And I always talk about acceptance as being like the, you know, the, the pinnacle of feeling love, you know, is when you feel accepted. And so I think that's sometimes where we find, you know, a lot of this misguidance is it's emotional. It's all driven emotionally. I feel accepted. Therefore, this is love. Like here I am. And maybe that's not being articulated in your mind, but the feeling is there. Um, I'm excited because, uh, so I don't know if we talked about it or not, but in my travel company, uh, Mejdi, we are going to do a civil rights trip coming up September. And Todd, who was on the same live stream, is leading it. And TM is going to meet us uh, at some point. Wow. Yeah. And I definitely, I want to go into detail about Mejdi because I want everyone to hear about it because it's incredible. It's so awesome. It's such a cool thing you do. Um, but I would love to dig into, and we already started touching on it, but it's like, what does that look like? How can we scale peace, if you will? You know, like, how do we scale peace? And, and, and it starts with the man in the mirror, if you will. Maybe I shouldn't reference right. that. Let's not do that. <laughs> but it starts with... No, you're right. I, I love that question because often when I talk about my work, people think, oh, so you have to be into international development and conflict resolution to be into peace. And I think that's a big mistake because it's a way of life. And so the only way to scale it is not to build more NGOs and not to build more uh, places for people to get out of their normal life, to go to a workshop, learn about it, and then I think it's about how do you apply it in your day-to-day life. These principles are things you can apply with your every relationship, your family, your uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, with your uh, co-workers, with your everybody. It's not the principle you only apply it with enemies. 
Uh, and the moment we start doing that as a way of life, as a style, as, as, uh, as how we live our lives in every aspect of business we do, every aspect of education we do, I think that's how we scale it up. Oh, wow. I love having conversations with Aziz Abusara. He, I, I find him one of the most interesting humans in the world. And what insights, right? All that he's learned and all that he has brought to the world and contributed and, and you know, taught to countless humans um, around the globe on conflict resolution and peace building. I mean, fascinating. And and it doesn't stop there. You know, we're going to talk about scaling peace in part two, so stay tuned. And this is where we're going to dive deeper into what you can do um, to scale peace in this world. Um, it is a lot simpler than you think. We're also going to get, you know, a closer look into Medjdi tools and how you can snag your spot on one of those tours in the very near future as there are a ton coming up and he's going to tell us all about that in part two and we're gonna we're gonna look a lot closer at interpersonal relationships communication where communication breaks down how it can be fixed and the exact steps to uh, seeking understanding with with others whether it be friends family um co-workers, partners, spouses, children, you name it. He is the expert and he is going to share with us and deep dive with us on part two. So you don't want to miss it. But for now, thanks for hanging out with us. I'm Jillian Christie and this is Gritty Girls 